0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Kerry Sanchirico. Probably didn't pronounce that right, but he'll correct me momentarily.
1: Oh, no, that was good. That was good. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, we are speaking about a fascinating new OUP publication called Between Hindu and Christian. Uh, Christ, Bhakta's Catholics, and the Negotiation of Devotion in Benares. Kerry, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Raj.
0: You're welcome. As we were navigating the the pronunciation of the name, which of course is important in in oral cultures, Um, what should have been mentioned is is that Kerry is actually Associate Professor of Theology and Religious Studies at Villanova University. So it's great to be able to speak with you today.
1: Great to speak with you.
0: So there has to be a backstory to this mm. line of research. You've got to, How did you get interested in this topic? Well, it's the what's, you know Esteri Puranas, right? So what's the yeah. what's the backstory? Yeah. The,
1: so you notice that I have a, a chapter called Abhidhanya, right? Or, oh yes. Oh yes. So um, my backstory is this: in 1993, I had a one-way ticket in hand uh, to uh, go and work for Habitat for Humanity in India. Uh, on a three year uh, three year tour, okay? Um, some people joined the Peace Corps. I joined Habitat for Humanity. And uh, that's what got this started for me because uh, I ended up finding myself, I, I lived for two years in Haryana and then a year in Andhra Pradesh. Uh, that is now Telangana, actually. Uh, and that started me thinking uh, about Hindu Christian interaction. Yeah, uh, because I was working for a nonprofit that is uh, explicitly uh, Christian, inclusive of other traditions, but it was motivated by uh, Christian faith. That's Habitat for Humanity. That's not often known by people who work with Habitat, but it's more explicit uh, internationally. And inadvertently, this 22-year-old started thinking about these issues of Hindu-Christian interaction and intercultural relations, um, big facts of colonialism and the residue of it. Um, and uh, that never really left me. I went to have formal theological training after those three years and one thing led to another. And uh, eventually I was uh, working on a on a doctorate. That's sort of the, the beginning of the backstory. And that's my relationship with South Asia. My interest in religion has always been to help me to understand place. And that place is South Asia and more particularly Frankly, in the modern world, India.
0: Yeah. So right before we started recording, Kerry um, um, apparently is a, you know he more professionally, but much like me, he's an arm, armchair ethnographer from birth. Where he was asking me questions about <laughs> the podcast and the podcast. Um, I think your question is how did this all start up? Well, uh, a note was sent out on one of our academic listservs in 2018 uh, for help with the the quote unquote Hindu Studies channel uh and uh i inherited it did about three in 2018 to about maybe 20-ish in 2019 and then the pandemic hit and this was my war effort to um to you know to to really engage folks who were cooped up so they could talk about their books and also give folks digital content for online courses and just enjoyment etc cetera, etc cetera. and i can't even remember when exactly but shortly thereafter i rebranded it indian religions versus Hindu studies and that's meaningful for this conversation because really I'm trying to look at the religious texture across the subcontinent and the diaspora there'from um, and so um, the, the precisely for 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 work such as this is why this is called um, Indian religions So what is the if someone asked you so an so elevator what's your book about what's this book about what would you say?
1: Yeah, this book is about a religious movement of those we would identify usually as Hindu, usually schedule SCs and OBCs, worshiping Jesus and Mary in Catholic spaces without being baptized. And the fact that they're doing this in a place like Kashi, in Varanasi, that's the interesting thing. And so a little more backstory for this, right? So... I arrived, you know, uh, when you want to do religion on the ground, you have to find the ground, uh, very particularly. yeah. And I had been looking for spaces. And Matthew Schmaltz at Holy Cross had done work on Dalit Catholics uh, in the 1990s. And he's been very helpful advisor to me. He said, you should go to Varanasi. I have some contacts there. Maybe there's something there you can find. So I go in 2008 and I meet with uh, the, members of the Indian Missionary Society, which is an indigenous Indian Catholic order. And I met them, and in our discussions in Varanasi, I can be even more particular at Shivalagat Lagat in Kashi, uh, at one space run by the IMS, they said, have you heard about the Krista Bhaktas? And me, who has, you know, been studying bhakti, you mean the Krishna Bhaktas? No, no, the Krista Bhaktas, the Krista what, what are Chris Bhaktas? Well, by the Chris Bhaktas are worshiping Jesus. Interesting. So we go to. Fascinating. Our, yeah. So that's how it starts. We go to Matradam Ashram, which is about six kilometers north of the cantonment. And there at Matradam Ashram, I was struck by the presence of no less than 6,000 Chris Bhaktas worshiping Jesus. And the whole project, which became the dissertation and which subsequently after years of reflection became the book was what the hell is going on here and how best to understand it.
0: Mm. And uh, without question, I mean, everyone's on the edge of their seat. First of all, they're, they're sort of replaying in their mind. They're, they're You know, the astute listeners, you know, maybe they're washing the dishes, maybe they're running, uh, maybe they're, who knows what, but they're like, wait a minute. Did this dude just say, people doing Christ-bhakti in Catholic spaces who aren't baptized. Saudi just, first of all, they're, they're, they're trying to register that. And now uh, precisely precisely uh, the purpose of this book is what's on their mind. How do you make sense of that? Right. Um, and there are, so many, <laughs> there are so many directions in which to take the conversation. But let me be a teeny bit formulaic at the outset. Please.
1: What are you looking at
0: as your data? What
1: are you studying? Yeah. So, as an ethnographer, what I wanted to do was to chart how people understood how this started. Okay. Then I wanted to parse out worldview that I could by way of discourse analysis. And then really trying to understand the lives of people and as they live their lives and as they interpret their lives and what brought them to the ashram and what continues them going with the ashram. And what is it to be a bhakta of Yesu? in this period of time, how our lives changed? How do they remain the same? And where might all of this be heading, be heading in a period of economic liberalization and uh, Hindutva and radical change and globalization?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And Christ, you know, It's been said that India is good to think with. Well, the Krista are really good to think with because what they do is they, they challenge us, just the way you said, my mind is sort of blown by imagining this scene, right? That's where we want to, after your mind gets blown, we want to try to put the pieces back together. How can we best understand? And so the argument is really, if you really want to understand this movement, don't see it as a singular one-off thing. There have been historical precedents. There has been various, the flames of Bhakti have been around the subcontinent uh, and there is vernacular religion on the ground. There are uh, material conditions, often generally, we can say, of lack and suffering, and needs are being met through worship. Uh, and, and so we put these different configurations together, along with, I would say, charismatic Catholicism, and you have the christbukta phenomenon. Not that we could predict it. I don't think we can predict social movements. If X and Y, then this. No, not in that way but you can see the conditions of possibility once this movement. Well, well,
0: one may not be able to predict what a very inventive, creative chef would do with the ingredients, but once this delicious dish is made, Right. maybe something that's known or unknown maybe no, no one's ever had paella and they're like what kind of fried rice is this oh this is not fried okay wait. but but once you once once you once you although it's more than some of its parts experientially clearly you can discern the ingredients when it right. is.
1: so i love that analogy right because then we can kind of deconstruct it not deconstructing right. to write it off but deconstructing to understand
0: you know, no account for um, um, sort of do inventory of the ingredients, right? The, the the dish is more than the sum of its parts, That's and there's very, technique there, and there's uh, there's sort of ex- an experiential dimension there. But nevertheless, there there, there are you know there's rice, <laughs> there's maybe seafood, there may, right. you know you can discern the, the the socio-cultural ingredients that empower this unique fusion <laughs> fusion yeah. fare or, that we're seeing.
1: Yeah, and that's how we get the masala, you know. That's how we get the various spices together in their own unique singularity, right? Um, so, so I pay attention to a lot to that in in this book, maybe tediously. That's an
0: important point. That's an important point.
1: What would you? Let me
0: stay thirty thousand foot view for now, and then we'll get into the the the, uh, the glorious weeds in a second. What would you most hope folks would take away from this book? <laughs> Or otherwise put, what might this book be uh, arguing positive?
1: Yeah, I think that one of the things that we see is that this is something that David Chidester writes about in the context of Africa, that really to study religion is to study interreligion. That whether traditions often admit it or not, there are always traces of the other. Right? And... For me, who has been so wrapped up in Hindu-Christian studies, what is Hindu and what is Christian is hardly a self-evident point. I think that's one of the main arguments, and what I'm trying to demonstrate that. Now, whether I do adequately demonstrate, that's another issue. But that's, that's the aim. That's the aim.
0: Well, without question, there are those who will, who will um, ascertain that very point for themselves, particularly folks perhaps using it for their research. And teaching um but one of the i mean there's a couple of running themes this might be i don't know this might be something along the lines of the 285th podcast in this on this channel and so clearly vast majority of the the books i look at are out of my niche and yet they nevertheless draw from the same somewhat syncretic soil of you know south asia and and um a couple of the running jokes is that you know in in all things Indic as i say it's 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 never either or is it a or is it b the answer is yes, yes. <laughs> it's always it's always some form of both and And i think that your particular case study really glor- gloriously sort of illumines this principle and another running theme that we noticed from 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 study to study is um the what you said a moment ago about you know what what is christianity and as well what is hinduism would you agree that perhaps that you know the latter is a bit more uh, amorphous or um elusive to define than the former or would you see them as equally yes
1: no i think i think they are now i'm going to say and unsay things okay but good how apropos (laughs) yes so um Yes, of course, we know the definitional issues around Hindu and Hinduism and Hinduisms uh, is, is vast. Um, but I will say, and, and, and it's easier to find Christianity. It is easier to find Christianity, you know, very often as a system of beliefs and practices creating a moral community around this person, Jesus Christ. Okay, I get it. There's a working definition. Doing it in terms of Hinduism can be certainly more complicated Um, But having said that, I think that one of the reasons why it seems easier with Christianity is because the category of religion and Christianity grew up together. In other words, Christianity set the terms for what religion properly is. Yes? Now, that's fine. But just like the, the word Hinduism, once you start to peel that onion, It gets more complicated. Who is a Christian? Who isn't? Who gets to say? Just in those questions, we can start to see it is much more complicated. And if you know history, you know it's a terribly complicated question. Because you ask five Christians what constitutes a Christian or Christianity, and you may get 15 answers.
0: Yeah? One of the brilliant opportunities of this niche, as I see it, is the utter invitation and insistence the, the, the phenomena the data uh, invites us and insists that we rethink or even abandon or suspend categorization to see what the heck's going on and then go back and revisit our theorization um
1: absolutely we should see see this is the thing how do we allow the lived religious experience to then shape our categories of understanding or exactly are categories so reified that we cannot see beyond them so let me give you an example so the aar is coming up yeah and one of the panels
0: for those uh, for the generalist audience the american academy of religion many may know
1: academy of religion it's an annual conference the conclave of religion nerds that will be gathering in san antonio in november yeah so the society uh for hindu christian studies one of the panels is uh Christianity through Hindu categories, you see? And so when we reverse that gaze and we start playing it the other way, then what sort of things might we notice that heretofore have been obscured? And can you understand Christianity using Hindu categories or has the category Christ in Christianity been so reified that it can only ever mean one thing, overdetermined? So that's what I'm trying to do in this text is to shake things up. Mm. Beautiful. So do that or not is another issue because one of my concerns about writing this is, in the very trying to undermine certain categories, I'm accidentally reinscribing them. Okay.
0: Well, so listen, was- Carrie. The, the way I see it is this: to be really honest with you, you know, among the intelligent and the thinking, uh, deconstruction's easy. It's it's yeah. it's it's effortless. It's easy to fault find to pick apart. My work is certainly not perfect. Certainly not a, a beyond critique. But it's not nothing. Nor is yours. It's not nothing. Yeah. Um, and to my mind, the best books are beginnings, right? The best books are positing something somewhat provocative that can, you know, that, that perhaps in, invite critique, but also invite um, rethinking. Um, these people on the ground, hmm. why are they offering their devotion to Christ?
1: Yeah. So this goes back to a prayer meeting that took place in 1992. And this is where the charismatic Catholic story comes. For those who don't know, charismatic Catholicism is a kind of Pentecostalized Catholicism where there is a heightened emphasis on the working of the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit, pavitra atma in Hindi, that Holy Spirit is not just something of the past in the lives of apostles, but is very presently active now. And the word got out of this meeting uh, and that there were prayers being offered for the sick and those who were suffering. And the story goes that people got healed and not just Catholics. Look, there are, is a very small Catholic population in North India. Okay. Uh, and so people got healed and they needed a place to go after this prayer meeting. So move into 1993, 94, they start to meet at Matradam ashram and a prayer meeting is happening on a regular basis. People are starting to come to this ashram, this Catholic ashram, and more people are getting healed and they are telling their friends and they are telling their friends. And so it goes. And that's how the word got out. And the ashram, the space itself has developed to meet the needs of those devotees over time very particularly like the pavilion that was built the open air pavilion was a piecemeal effort started in one place then some more money came in and they built it larger and they built it larger and they built it larger so that now underneath this pavilion about eight thousand people can can be standing or sitting which is
0: what they do you tell us a bit about what else these folks are doing in terms of their religiosity or who else they may be worshiping type thing
1: Sure. Now, now, this is a touchy information because you know that Abrahamic traditions are not so keen on worshiping, well, non Christian deities in, 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 in Christianity. Uh, and what I found, if I could use the metaphor of center and periphery, the closer you got to the center of this movement, the more exclusive worship of, of Yesu became, of Jesus became. Yeah. For many, in the ashram itself, those who stroll in casually on a second Saturday. There are many there for whom Jesus is a superhuman being like others that can give some sort of uh, boon. The deeper you go into the movement, the more exclusive it becomes so that those uh, devotees are no longer worshiping, say the big gods, particularly of Shiva or Krishna uh, <clears throat> or the goddess. That is not, however, uniform. And one finds that in the regular day-to-day life, you could still have Krista Bhaktas who go and visit the local um, uh, Dibaba, right? The the local Gramadeva, the local village deity uh, and do some propitiation uh, and then move on about their daily lives. Um, And so, but what I found was the further you go in, to the movement the more exclusive devotion uh becomes
0: uh tell us a bit about the
1: baptism piece or lack thereof is there a tension there for anyone absolute tension because uh for traditional christianity baptism is the entry point into the faith you know for most uh and that will follow depending on the christian tradition there will be sacraments that are are followed. Uh, throughout one's life in a similar way that some scars might follow a Hindu through his or her life. And this will travel from cradle to grave. And if you're in the Catholic and Orthodox tradition, you'll have prayers for the dead, for example, obviously not so much in evangelical or, or the Protestant world. And so the interesting thing is that in, they are not being baptized. And in lieu of that, what's happening is that other means of communication between devotee, and deity, are, have been negotiated. That's the negotiation piece. Okay. Um, and there's different reasons, stated reasons, for not baptizing. We can get into that if you like. Okay. Absolutely. So, okay. So there's, there's... Listeners might find this interesting because there is always a sense that Christian missionaries are eager to baptize all comers. Uh, the The priests and nuns who often minister to krisbaktas have a real fear that baptism will, in fact, hurt the faith of the krisbaktas. That is, um, their faith will become, to use the language of Abraham, routinized. And these will simply become run-of-the-mill, nominal Catholics with no real living faith in Jesus Christ. So in lieu of that, and this is the real charismatic part of this movement, they would much rather have people have a living relationship with Yesu than having the formal sacraments administered and everything being done by the book. Mm. So that's a new thing in the Catholic tradition instead of like of the resistance to baptism. You know, let's not be hasty here. Uh and make sure that a lot of learning has gone on and, and catechesis. Well, that's very different than say what took place in Latin America in the 15th and 16th, 1700s for example, just to show how different it is. Okay. Now the I, other I, big I, fact of of the matter is that um baptizing thousands of OBCs and SCs in this period of time in during Hindu nationalist descendants is quite literally dangerous. And so there is, you know. The theological and spiritual message that's given, hey, let's not ruin these people, which is interesting. Uh, and coupled with the big fact that just down the street is the local branch of the Shiv Sena. So um, that's the everyday reality. And in light of that reality, indigenous practices have formed by which Christ does commune with Yesu in new, and we could argue, well, Hindu ways,
0: you know. The uh, sort of uh, invoking the, the healing phenomenon at uh, the sort of the genesis of this movement, um, regarding the the, the the power, the force, the spiritual power, are is it understood at all through a Hindu theological lens or lenses, or how is that power understood?
1: Well, I think... I think that we have a change or a transformation that takes place over time. Uh, And this is always an interesting thing about the word that is, again, overdetermined, which is conversion. Yeah, Um, Very often, you know, you cannot come to, no one comes to the ashram with a, a, a blank slate. They all have their preconceived theologies and philosophies that have developed over time, bequeathed over thousands of years. And so when, when Jesus is encountered by many, he is done so as a super mundane being that has certain powers. Is he understood to be the very ground of being in traditional Catholic or Christian theology? No, this may develop over time, however. This may develop over time. One of the interesting things, Raj, about uh, the christ bhaktas and the devotional vocabulary of yesu bhakti has been if you have ears to hear you can hear the vaishnavism behind it you can hear it
0: perfect so tell us a bit more about that please
1: well i think you know christianity gets to north india pretty late in the story in the devotional story and the devotional vocabulary has has been provided and indigenization projects of the Catholic Church over the last, well, specifically 60 years, has been very open to using that vocabulary. You know, the language is the language of devotion, which I include in my book where I really parse out words that are used, right? Uh, uh, And moods and motivations that are elicited, which sound very much like the language say of mirabai, or um, you could even hear the language of Surdas there as well. Uh, hat tip to Jack Holly, etc., um, mm-hmm. and other scholars of, of of Bhakti in North India. Um, you hear it uh, alive and well. You hear a word like Jagdish, hmm, right? You hear a word like Mukti Datta, uh, and so I've tried to pay close attention to those words, right? Because one could go in and not have any knowledge and say, "Oh, this is just a Christian." Uh, revival meeting, if you don't know the language, right, but then in everyday parlance, you could say, well, that's just a sort of top down that the priests have used on, on, on these uh, devotees, but they use it among themselves. They don't need to be taught how to worship God. I mean, particular forms, but this is where I think the category of bhakti actually crosses, right, crosses religious traditions over and over and over again. And we are remiss if, in all of our discourse on bhakti in South Asia, we do not also include uh, what we would identify as Christian forms of, of bhakti. Uh, and this has been made very strongly, this case, uh, on Islam. And I think we also need to extend the boundaries also to Yesu bhakti as well. And, and
0: That's fascinating for so many reasons. Um, the extent to which the idiom of bhakti and its ability to to span or even assimilate various objects of devotion. Um, I remember when I was uh, I immigrated to Toronto very young. I was three years old, and um, I <laughs> probably understandably so. I was although Toronto is is now the world's most diverse city statistically. Uh, I was I was very sheepish and embarrassed of my uh, culture because you know it's difficult fitting in. Blah 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 blah. You get the idea. But I remember driving past this this local. Um, um, Roman Catholic Church community, uh, Italian community, and there's this um, maybe about a mile or two from where I lived, one of the main streets in Toronto, and there was this glorious white statuette of uh, of Mother Mary
1: mm-hmm.
0: in front of the the church and I remember on it was a Sunday I had this this I, had, <laughs> I was able to see um, Christians uh, Catholics, bring flowers to the bust of Mother Mary and offer them. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, they do that too. Yes. <laughs> oh right. my God, they do that too. <laughs> Just, it was one of these moments where I was like, what's happening here? Yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, on the one hand, you know, this the, the Indic idiom of bhakti certainly uh, one can assimilate a variety of objects of devotion to that. and And also there seems to be Perhaps even something cross cultural about the need to hold as an object of devotion whatever one is worshiping. So I find that fascinating. So tell us a little bit about, if you can, uh, the world of view of these Christ with respect to, in particular,
1: uh, samsara. Ah, very good. Yes. Well, this is something that as so much of this, this might, be, might be coming across of me not wanting to come down uh, too strongly. I want to be careful. Um, the Khris most definitely live in, a, in an enchanted universe with various uh, demigods and deities and sub-deities and Apsars and Devas and Shaitans. Uh, that's all very real, okay? That's all very real. We should also note that many Christian Indians believe in a kind of reincarnation. Okay, And that means uh, Christians who have been Christian for generations. And I think with the bhaktas, we see a sort of in-between space, where some people uh, see them as when they die, going to be with Jesus immediately, uh, and others more circuitously. But that's a work in progress, and that's more work that I need to do. Right? I still think that Karma theory is still alive and well for Chris Bhakti's. I hear it in the discourse, you know. Um, and this is always the fascinating thing about trying to take apart that paella that you that you referred to. I think the most important thing, um, you know, this isn't necessarily a pie in the sky after you die kind of theology. It is, it does have with Pentecostalism, uh, a certain amount of uh prosperity gospel attached i would say a kind of soft prosperity gospel that this god and god's nature wants to bless you and that one of the signs of that blessing is a material improvement uh and hopefully th- and and but that our living relationship is at least beginning in this life and that it will continue on into the next life mm. yeah.
0: fascinating Part of why that's so fascinating is this modern phenomenon of, of a variety of individuals who variously identify as Christian, Jewish, spiritual, but not religious, who uh, who really resonate with karmic theory, uh, and don't, <laughs> and yeah. even in the modern age, don't you know, even in the Western world, don't don't see it as mutually exclusive. I find that fascinating, particularly in my continuing studies uh, teaching most of my teaching these days is continuing studies out learners lifelong learners it's, it's, it's fascinating well,
1: there are certain resonances with parts of christianity on this like this the very notion of you reap what you sow so the question is to what extent is that the case you know for how long for how long are you reaping? Long? One, for one and life for many <laughs> right and for how long uh, you know so, and one could be worshiping uh, a deity and understand that samsara will continue with you in relationship to that deity for ages unto ages yeah and again mira comes to mind for that immediately to me
0: so you had the opportunity or you created the opportunity to uh, sort of digest and reflect and incubate your ideas between dissertating and publishing the book mm-hmm. um I was a bit of the opposite in that I what did I, I? defended in 2015 and then 2016, I just had to figure out how to support myself as an independent scholar. Uh, we all know what the job market is like. And then, you know, it, it, long story short, I opted to remain independent to wait out the election cycle. And by the other side of that, I was like, Oh, wait a minute, I can do what I want to do working for myself. So great. But, but my, I think my, the first book came out 2018. So it's fairly short between dissertating and Reflecting, yeah. and then in many ways, I imagine, um, I imagine there was uh, there was lots of change in your perspective and thinking. And could you tell us a little bit about that gestation process?
1: It's a great uh, question. I there were a lot of factors in the distance between the dissertation and the final product, uh, and one of them was sheer practicality. Uh, my I was right on the cusp of everything going to pot as far as jobs go right it was while i was in grad school um the economic crisis the downturn of 09 happened and that's when i received my funding to go overseas so it was a good place to be in that year and there were still jobs when i was when i went on the job market in 2011 and 2012 um and I was really taken up with the work first at the University of Hawaii and now at Villanova University with the work of being a young scholar in a department and the other and getting involved in at least one other project. Uh, I edited, ended up co-editing a work called Hagiography and Religious Truth, which took time. I did some other uh, writing as well. And I have three children, a wife and three children, and that took time. And also, I wasn't satisfied. I had a lot more translations that I wanted to do. I have hours and hours of translation, never made it into this book, and that takes time. And I really just wanted to keep reflecting on it. Uh, And I got the contract with OUP. It it took them a while to give me a response back. And I wasn't in a rush because I had other things to do. And I was moving towards completion, and then COVID hit. And that changed everything. So suddenly, I was not thinking about this book. Yeah,
0: and the world changed.
1: The world changed. Yeah, and we're still uh, dealing with that. And I hope we spend more time reflecting on it. Um, so that's that explains the gestation, the long gestation period. But an interesting part of having, you know, making the sausage is there are parts of this book that are are quite old, and there's parts that are much newer. <laughs> now the reader, yes. the reader, won't yeah. know that. But yeah, I know.
0: that's yeah exactly. So I'm sort of hoping to peek behind the curtain and, and wonder. What sort of, what did that, uh, the pragmatics notwithstanding, what did that opportunity afford you?
1: Well, it afforded me a time to keep growing up with and thinking with the Chris does And India was changing. And India is changing. Uh, And it's not the same. During my time, uh, the prime minister changed. And that's uh, Prime Minister Modi. And guess where he is elected out of? Varanasi. Yeah. So the electricity has never been better and in Kashi as it is now. There are certain things that have changed in Varanasi, um, and vote banks have changed. For example, the Khrist are OBCs and SCs, and as it happens, OBCs uh, uh, tend to back not, not just uh, the BJP, but can be quite popular with OBCs, Yeah. And that's an interesting thing, right? Because uh, it's a Hindu, nation, a Hindu nationalist uh, party uh, with these people who are worshiping Jesus and working it out, you know? Um, some people would call them converts, though certainly within the boundaries of the Indian constitution, um, they are still considered Hindu. They cannot be considered Christian either by the, the constitution because they are not baptized. And so, see, they fall outside the, the typical categories, and their political views may also not be what we particularly expect. So, in, in that sense, Raj, they're good to think with, and so I continue to do that. Uh, and mm. I don't know, you know, I, I I um don't know what will happen to the Chris Buck I in my one of my final chapters, I sort of offer some dangerous prognostications, as they call them. Um, I'm not sure what will happen. I have some ideas what will happen to this this movement but i hope to spend the rest of my life thinking through it with them it's
0: um it it's it, it's lovely it's so uh it's so rich to have um inspiring to have a topic that can capture one's um academic scholarly interest for you know it's it's a, a long shelf life <laughs> um was there anything else about uh, the book that you hope me touch on it, that you wanted to say?
1: Well, I just want to know that I do spend some time thinking about a uh, place and the development of space and what it means. I use some categories, hopefully given to us by Robert Orsi about uh, abundant people. And I apply that to places like Varanasi and Matradam Ashram and trace their development, how they get roots in a place and the phenomenological and numeral encounters that are understood to, to be there. That's one thing that I try to play with. I I introduced, uh, I used uh, Tanya Lorman uh, talking about spiritual kindling and what is being attempted in the prayers uh, very often of krispaktas and ministers to krispaktas and trying to kindle faith in people to bring about faith um, and to introduce a new sort of framework of existence of how they see the world um that's another thing that i do and i provide and this was a, a kind of a challenge for this book is how do you pitch a book that is called between hindu and christian to the reading public or to scholars because some will say well this has you know is this a hindu studies book is it a christian studies book what yes is <laughs> that, what I think? yes but that that makes for just not just a long book but lots of parent the, uh parenthetical references you know and that can get tedious for people but i found myself like i have to explain what this word means i have to explain what this word means you know to this group i have to explain this to this other group i have to explain this other thing and that was a real challenge uh to this type of work any sort of comparative work or interreligious work uh is a minefield for that because you want to be just to all parties and everything in between
0: no uh no small feat, without question um uh, there was a recent, uh, recently covered on the podcast, uh, I think it was Hindu-Christian dual belonging, mm, fascinating yeah. re- related work. And there've been a number of, 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 of works and for the podcast, it's great because this of course will appear on on the channel that, that I host primarily Indian religions, but without question, this will also appear on new books in Christian studies uh, among other relevant channels. And that sort of, uh, to my mind, that's more of a feature than a bug <laughs> to this sort of scholarship
1: yeah um, no. so and i'm a big fan of the people who wrote that book that you just that you just cited even though oh, I good i can't wait to read it i'm I, I am looking forward
0: fantastic um so i believe i answered your question about sort of the podcast taking off at, at at the outset of our of our of our podcast uh today but um i will pass the baton because you 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 um i appreciate uh, <laughs> Well, I appreciate the, the the joy and the interest in asking people questions that you obviously have and that you, you know, I, I joked a thousand times, I have no idea how I'm not an ethnographer. I mean, as a scholar, yeah. I study texts. So I'll pass the baton. Is there anything else that you had wanted to ask before we close of me?
1: Well, I, I think what I'd like to ask is because you have your ear to the ground, so to speak, what are the trends that you're seeing in scholarship uh, on India? Um, you- that is
0: a great question that i actually should devote some thought to because it's as i say it's been i've had nearly 300 podcast experiences and there's no you know contrary to what a very small percentage of our colleagues think or feel or assume there is no um there is no uh, agenda or mandate i have you know anyone who's producing scholarship on uh, South Asian Studies and Dick Religions um, from credible presses mm-hmm. uh, I I have on the podcast, regardless of their methodology or their niche. Uh, so it's it's, it's it's there's a variety of areas. So nothing, to my knowledge, is left out. And if it is, it certainly isn't intentional. Um, one of the things that I see more and more of is a scholarship that really tries to grapple with the experience of adherents uh the pious the religious in a way that i think there are particular there's a particular phenomenon of the scholar practitioner that we've talked about but whether or not one is a scholar practitioner i really feel that one of the strands that i see is scholarship that really takes seriously obviously you know we we operate from an edict paradigm necessarily this this is this is what the production of academic knowledge is about, but nevertheless, taking seriously the perspective of emic experiences only helps us to be better scholars. Obviously, it goes without saying, provided we don't fall prey to, um, you know, shoddy scholarship or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? You know, but I see that's one trend. Um, and I think the the feature, not bug, of your scholarship in terms of scholarship that is touching on a number of subfields or um, methodologies, I see that as definitely a trend that I've noticed. But that's a really good and fascinating question. I should really um, have a think uh, consciously at some point. Look over look over the works. Hopefully that because
1: helps. I say that because you know we are constantly bombarded by data, yeah, uh, and new books. And there's no way that we all can keep up. And you're in a unique position because of the cross that you bear. To really yeah, you like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, 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 he- the heaviness of the crown of <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. The heavy is the head that wears your crown, Raj. Um, that you're just in a place to say, these are the trends, these are well, this is what I'm seeing. Uh, this is what people are thinking of. These are products, these are uh Popular uh, theorists. These are people that are being neglected. These are things that we are not talking about. And then you can always ask the "why" question.
0: Yeah, and and also I've seen some really fascinating straddling of textual studies and ethnography, which I think, you know, ideally probably is the way to go for for all things Indic. But it really, the, the the just a, a heightened awareness of. Cultural context around texts and the way they, they interplay, which I think is fascinating and important. Certainly, there are trends in Purana studies that I've noticed because that's my particular nation, and, and uh, where we're we are endeavoring to um, perhaps change uh, the course of the ways in which the Puranas were originally received by early colonial scholars as, you know, bastardized. <laughs> texts that <laughs> right. shifted here and there and weren't didn't have the fixity of the of the Vedic revelations for example um so you know those te- those trends I, I you know am more attuned to because in when I operate as as podcast host a scholar Raj is in the background but he's in the back seat he's in the back seat he may kind of whisper in my ear every once in a while but I don't listen to him too much it's sort of I'm focusing my attention on this work and not bringing up other people's work or other podcasts, you know, and so I try to just spotlight that work. I mean, I could have guest a and then guest B is their nemesis. And I, nobody would know from the conversation. They're all, I'm just focusing on the work being produced as a service to our field and, and the public. But the question you asked is really is fascinating. And I think I'm actually going to give us some thought and look over some of these podcasts and see what I'm noticing.
1: Yeah, um, so I could give you some work to do as professor, right? If I was Oh, good. A, oh, good. I, I would say this. What you need to do is after every year that you complete it, you do a big thing on this and you do a podcast dedicated to trends in the books that you have covered. You,
0: in. you know what? That sounds like a fascinating idea because I've been thinking more and more on the meta level of not just the content of the books. One, one thing that I can comment on uh sort of in the moment aside from the actual content cuz you know you do hundreds of books and you you know you'd have to really sit and get all squinty and remember what is where but one thing i will say is regarding the application regarding the podcasting enterprise itself the world has changed i was working from home on zoom teaching online in 2017 i had no freaking idea what i was doing until 2020 And then my colleagues who are all profs for the most part, some baristas, but most (laughs) profs, were like, Oh, this, you you know, they were knocking on my door in 2020 for obvious reasons. Um, so one thing I will say is I did not ever, I sensed an opportunity to serve with the podcast, uh, without question, but the extent to which it has become relatively integrated into academic enterprise is beyond my wildest dreams. Um, some profs and students to the podcast for research purposes. Uh, it's listed on CVs. You know, p- people use it to keep up with what's being published because you know someone else does the heavy lifting of looking on all the the publishers' websites, and and so uh, it's uh, it's it's formally. Um, uh, there's a formal affiliation now with um, with uh, religions of South Asia, with with a couple of the AAR groups, and so that was beyond my wildest dreams. I held a, a reception at Denver last year and at, at the AAR, and I thought, what on earth is going on? I mean, it's sort of because I speak. I you know, I'm in my little home office here in in Midtown Toronto, where I teach in a variety of spaces, including the OCHS, and I'm in a little black box. But really, I mean, when I when I take a look at, at the ways in which this podcast in particular has infiltrated the field, uh, it's d- definitely beyond what I could have anticipated, frankly.
1: I think you figured out that you're meeting, you met a need that we didn't know we had, you know, yeah. a, I think it's a real benefit and I really appreciate the work that you're doing in new books and religion, etc. cetera. Um, because it's just a way to extend the discourse.
0: Extend exactly.
1: It, give it to our students to ruminate on. Hey, go listen to this podcast. This is very helpful. This particular point, focus on this, and we can bring it back and talk about it.
0: And also the nuts and bolts are there. The nuts and bolts are there for the specialists, right? But this, what the podcast does is it keeps it at a conversational level for accessibility so that anybody who is remotely interested can decide whether or not they want to dive into that level of discourse and ironically sometimes even keeping it at that 30,000 foot level 30,000 30, foot level where you know uh where you know purposely naive questions are asked mm-hmm it actually forces us to really think about the ramifications. So what's your book about? So why is this important? So, so, so you know, are these people Hindu or not? Those um, seemingly naive questions, and they, they often come from students, actually, um, but they really, um, I think they invite and even coerce us to think about the implications of what we're doing beyond the nitty gritty.
1: And that's why it's such an important thing to be able to teach, because... It then it stays out of this hothouse of intellectual scholar speak. Mm-hmm.
0: Fascinating. So, uh, you know, um, I have passed the baton and I will uh, take that baton back to close. I hope that I've sated your your ethnographic appetite for for one day.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Never.
0: No. All right. Well, then we'll have to we'll have to continue. And I like that idea of podcast, a podcast, whether it's a annually a podcast episode about the podcast. I love that idea. And while I naively had no I didn't anticipate what, what, what the podcast could be, apparently, you know, Marshall Poe, the editor in chief of New Books Network, he's he's a bona fide visionary. He he saw this. He, yeah. he this is this is his hope. Yes. you know, for, 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 for the, these various subject specific podcasts. So I thought, wow, without question, he's, you know, he's a, he's a visionary, which is really cool. Yes. Um, so we are about time for today. So thank you very much for appearing on the podcast. It's been my pleasure. Uh, for those listening, of course, um, we've been uh, talking at Keri San Chirico. You got it on Between Hindu and Christian, uh, Christ-Baktas, Catholics, and the negotiation of devotion in Banaras, the Varanasi the Holy City. Uh, Until next time, keep well, keep listening, keep contemplating the usefulness or uselessness of religious categories. (laughs) And also keep contemplating the power of
1: podcasts. Take care. Take care. Thank you.